millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to a special installment of History Hack. Today we're going to be commemorating the 1st of July 1916. It's 104 years today since the outbreak of the Battle of the Somme, which is rightly regarded as the worst disaster in a day that befell the British Army. It was horrific. But we wanted to look at it from a slightly different perspective today. Um, The narrative quite rightly focuses always on the life lost, the failure and the inability of the British Army to carry out their plan in breaking the German lines and bringing an end to the First World War. But that doesn't mean that this was an entire failure on the 1st of July. And we wanted to bring the successes of the day into focus. So with us today, Alina, you're right. You ready for this? I'm ready to rock and roll, are you? Yeah, you, uh, you learned stuff in the last song one, didn't you? We're going into a bit more detail today. Are you, are you I learned lots of stuff. Right you taught there? me really well. Okay, so with us today, we have Andy Locke. Locky. Hello. The dark side, he's left 1917. You've got a bit of a nosebleed. Uh, I think I, I got going with 1916 initially. I've, I've sort of migrated further on in the war, but 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 the song's bread and butter. Um, and Holmes is with us. You're right, Holmes. Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. And Bethany Moore's with us. Hey, Beth. Hello. So basically, some World War One bods in a room because we want to talk about something different, don't we? Instead of just talking about the the usual narrative of the Battle of the Somme, which is this awful blackest day in the history of the British Army. Um, 20,000 dead, 60,000 casualties. We all know my theory on how you have to lump a lot of those into the first four days of July or whatever, because that was on the last podcast, um, which a lot of you have downloaded. But what we want to talk about today is a narrative that doesn't usually get done, which is that at the very southern end of the British part of the battlefield around Montalban, the 13 Corps actually had what constituted a good day. Isn't that right, Lockie? They did. Yeah, they took all their objectives. I mean, you've got two divisions uh, attacking, um, both new army divisions. So, you know, they're not going to be the most experienced guys out there, although there were some re- regular battalions uh, in amongst it all. Um, yeah, they press on, do very well. Um, they There's reasons for it, uh, I reckon. Um, they're, they're pretty well supported either side of them. Um, and they've got use of French artillery, but they do a lot right themselves, and there's a lot to be happy about with what they do. So, first of all, let's just talk a bit about the guy in charge, which is General Congreve. Walter Norris Congreve was a career army officer, naturally, had been in since 1885, had won the Victoria Cross in 1899 at the Battle of Colenso in South Africa. 
after the Boer War, he had um, had various commands, uh, staff commands, um, suffered from asthma, but was deployed with the British Expeditionary Force in France at the very beginning of the war. Um, his men were stationed near Neuve-Chapelle during the time that the Christmas Truce took place. Um, Holmes, one of the main things, isn't it, that sets them up for success is that whereas some points along the line the artillery bombardment doesn't do its job, it really has done much better in this area, hasn't it? Yeah, the artillery did a great job here. I mean, they, they were slightly more fortunate than on other sectors of the battlefield because they had, they're on Maricourt Ridge, I think, behind, sort of behind the front line. So it's one of the, this sector of the battlefield was one of the only spots where we had really good visibility over the Germans. But at the same time, um, we used the artillery really effectively. As Andy said as well, we had support from the French artillery on the sort of right eastern side of the sector as well. But this is one of the only areas where I think the barbed wire was actually pretty much smashed up by the artillery. So, Lockie, what divisions are here on this day? Okay, 13 Corps has on the extreme right of the British line with the French army on their right. You've got 30th uh, Division uh, led by General Shea. And they are a mixture of a lot of men from northern England and the northeast, um, Manchester and Liverpool in particular. Uh, we've got a battalion of the of the Green Howards in there, and some Bedfords, and some Wiltshires uh, as well. But but the general makeup of the of the division uh, is, in terms of the infantry, is Northern English New Army units, and it's with the exception of those regular battalions who've been who've been brought in to kind of bolster them. It's it's their first big test uh, in a battle, and. Uh, this is quite a big ask of them. They've got some. They've got some challenging stuff in front of them uh, with uh, a few redoubts and and some wooded areas to negotiate. On their left, another new battalion, 18th Division, uh, led by Ivor Maxey, who is renowned as a great trainer of men, um, and uh, would go on and, and command a corps later. Probably not as well as he commanded a division. A division, to be fair. Although, yeah, and, and yeah I think he, we agree with you. And then he gets bumped into to training roles later on, to which he's mm. very well suited indeed. And, you know, as part of what, what made the British Army a successful thing in 1918, he's, he's kind of part of that. So the, the thing I really like about Maxi as well is that he thought it was really important to, to learn and remember junior officers' names. He thought it was really important from an esprit de corps point of view. You know, and that's just the sort of thing... I may be being unfair here, but that's the sort of thing I can't imagine Rawlinson even thinking about. That's leadership, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, Beth, um, 18th Division, they attack from in front of uh, Carnoy, don't they? They line up in front of the village. Yeah, they're, they're right in front of the uh, village of Carnoy, as you just said. They're assisted in that area, not just by the artillery and what have you, but they also they have the detonation of two mines as well. So we've got a £500 mine on the western edge of their sector that they are attacking towards, um, which is meant to remove the threat of some machine gun nests that uh, are in that particular area. And then another one, a much, much larger one of £5,000 under a strong point called Casino Point. Um, so they find themselves in this position quite well situated with the support from the mines, which is obviously another topic about the first day and about their effectiveness as well. I think also, Beth, you, you know, you may have been coming on to mention this, apologies if you were, but in that sector there, they also used, I think it was two Livens flame projectors. Yes, which... they had the projectors in that area, which obviously bring their own level of uh, terror and also effectiveness as well. 
um i can't imagine being in that environment and then finding something like a living's projector being aimed at me and feeling much hope for what was coming towards me yeah guys we have actually private fred henworth who was with the sixth royal berkshire regiment actually left some thoughts behind about the moment when the mines went up and his company was in support went over the top opposite the casino point mine we were standing on a fire step just as the attack had started and we had orders we were going to send a mine up before the men took the frontline German trench. But our men were so mad to get there, they rushed forward under cover of smoke bombs, a slight wind carrying the smoke towards the German line. One of our companies, being well in front, got to the German parapet and was just landing in the trench when the mine went up and blew most of that company up with it. Just as that happened, we had orders to go over the top and extend out. So, Lockie, that's pretty grim. Yeah, I mean, it's one of these examples where not everything goes right. I mean, we're talking about a successful action uh, here. Mm. You know, <laughs> doesn't mean everything went right and, and lots of things. It wasn't horrifically bloody and people died either. It's, it's a matter of seconds with these mines. And you know, if, you, if you're the fellas waiting to, to, to jump off, climb out of the trenches, go over the top, and the mine that you're expecting to go off hasn't gone off, and you know you've got to advance across that ground. What do you do? Well, the answer is you get up and, and advance across it anyway, because there's nothing your engineers can do in the next few minutes to make that mine explode. You just got to cross your fingers and hope you're not above it when it does. And I mean, nearby, near Private Henwood is Private. I hope I'm saying his name right and doing him justice. Private Cood. Um, his party was actually told to remain in the trench as the assaulting troops moved forward. This must be the beginning of the end. 7:22 a.m. Every gun for eight minutes gives off their best and the din was terrific. Punctual to time, 7.28am, two minutes before the line advances, Captain Neville, 8th East Surrey's, kicks off the football that is to take the boys across to Jerry. Now, although the line right and left have moved, I am too busy to take in the surroundings other than our immediate front. East Surrey's and Queen's go over singing and shouting and the ball is kicked from one to another. Tone, I know you're into your sportsman on the Western Front. Tell us about Neville and his football. So, Captain Billy Neville, he was from the 8th East Surrey's. Just, just before the attack, when he was at home, he thought it would be a good idea to purchase two footballs to sort of motivate his men as they, as they had to pass across no man's land. Now, on, on one of the footballs, he had something like the great European kickoff, the East Surrey's versus the Huns. And on the other one, he just it had simply written, no referee. And then as soon as the whistle went, him and another officer stood on the parapet and kicked the footballs out into no man's land. And the men chased them across no man's land. You know, I guess the intention was it would take their minds off what they were doing as, as they moved towards the German trenches. Captain Neville was unfortunately killed, I think, fairly early on. And he's buried in Carnoy Military Cemetery, I think it is. Um, but the two footballs survived. I think one of them... One of them, I think, was burnt in that, that Surrey Army Museum. I can't remember where it was. And it's, I don't know where the other one is. I'm thinking something like the Royal Engineers Museum, bizarrely, but that might not be entirely correct. He did other stuff as well, didn't he? In the days sort of leading up to it, it might have been even the day before, he was sort of circulating sort of jokey pamphlets to try and kind of keep keep his, his lad's spirits up. And I don't know whether to sort of hold him up as an example of pluck and determination or, or, or as an example of hubris, really, because it's quite a sad story, isn't it? And, and the 8th East Surreys, they, they, they lost three company commanders that day, so they had a, they had a tough old day of it too. But I mean, they, they, they took their objectives, another, another successful attack, but very costly. 
I, I read something about him once, which I've never been able to find, so I don't know if this is true or not. But apparently, apparently, he used to stand up on the parapet in the morning at the stand and just shout obscenities at the Germans. I don't know if that makes you like him more or less, Adley, but I've never more. been able to find that since reading it many years ago. Yeah, more. Yeah. Um, I think we actually had one of his fellow officers in the battalion wrote a letter to Neville's family to explain to them what happened in the moments following the kicking of the football. Five minutes before zero time, he strolled up in his usual calm way and we shared a last joke before going over. The company went over the top very well, with Soames and your brother kicking off with the company footballs. We had to face a very heavy rifle and machine gun fire, and nearing the German trench, the lines slackened pace slightly. Now, seeing this, Wilfred dashed in front with a bomb in his hand, and he was immediately shot through the head, almost side by side with Soames and Sergeant Major Wells. Lockie, you've mentioned, haven't you, that this actually, despite notwithstanding individual tragedies that are playing out on a battlefield, as they always will, um, this init- their initial attack is reasonably successful. Yeah, it is. I mean, so often when you look at the sort of northern sector of the Somme, you, you, you read about uncut barbed wire holding men up and then the machine guns get going. And that's without cock-ups like 29th Division and their, you know, their artillery and the firing of the mine early, etc. You know, even things going right, there's still problems. Um, whereas, you know, the, the broken wire really did help these units out. And that's, that's largely got to go down to artillery and observation. Beth, just contrast for us what's happening at the northern end of the battlefield so people have some idea of, of how this is construed as a success. Right, OK. So in the, the northern half of, of the battlefield, so you start up at Serre and make your way down through Beaumont Hamel, down towards the Ancre Valley, up to Teepval, down to the Albert Bapome Road. Yeah, it's, it is a different story to what's happening of 13 Corps. As Andy briefly mentioned there, I'll just further illustrate on those points. You know, you've got, as an example, you've got 29th Division, whose mine at Beaumont Hamel, which is there to support them, to blow the Hawthorne Redoubt, the German strong point, is blown 10 minutes early at 7.20. Never forgive him for that stupid decision. I just... Yeah, you either blow it right before, don't you? I, or, I far, or far enough ahead that you can, you know, a couple, maybe a couple of hours earlier, so that you can send troops forward and consolidate the position, yeah. rather than do it ten minutes beforehand, where you're giving the, yeah, the Germans you're warning just enough time to get ready for your attack, don't you? Absolutely. You killed by the initial blast. It's yeah. what what's, what I always found really odd is if. Why that one went off 10 minutes early when all the rest went off two minutes early? You know, you've got mines at Labasel, at Carnoy, at Fricor, uh, and they all went off at 7.28. It would be more consistent if they were all went off at 7.20, but the fact that one did and then the rest didn't, you have to wonder what, how they ended up discussing it and what conclusions, how they came to those conclusions. The whole attack's disjointed from top to bottom and, and down to brigade level. There's no, there's no, you know, two divisions that issue identical instructions to their assaulting troops, all right? So there's, I don't want to say a lack of control. To, well, no, let's say a lack of control. Rawlinson is not dictatorial in how he instructs his men or how, how he instructs his divisional commanders or even corps commanders. He leaves a lot of freedom, and so you get some funny decisions. I mean, Wilfred Neville, let's go back to 13 Corps, has been killed on the East Surrey front, but they have got forward. But the garrison knows that they're coming and they now come under heavy fire. And this is where Colonel Irwin thinks his men need 
his leadership to drive them on. When the impetus died down, I thought that this was the moment that I might be of some use. I went in and picked up all the chaps I could and went over the parapet by myself, stood well out in the open and said, come on, come on, come on. They all came on quite smoothly. They didn't know what to do after they'd taken their first objective, but I think I acted properly. I really don't know. It's a very difficult job to know what a commanding officer should or shouldn't do. So then what's happening, Holmes, to the uh, the barrage moves on, doesn't it, regardless of what's happening? Because at this point you have the creeping barrages of artillery for support, um, but they don't factor in failure. No, the, the barrage was going to creep anyway, and that just means it just moves on. on to, it moves on at a certain speed, but once the, the speed of that creeping barrage was set, it was just going to carry on at that rate. There, there was no real method of adjusting it in real time. So if the troops didn't catch up with it, um, they would sort of lose touch with it and it would lose its effectiveness. Yeah, so that protective curtain in front of them is, is sort of moving away from them, becoming less and less use, isn't it? It, it might be worth mentioning that we're not talking about a creeping barrage in the in the same way that that happened at maybe Messine or, or even Arras yeah. the previous year. We're, talk, we're talking about a barrage that leap, that goes forward in in bounds, mm. um, and so I mean they they had half a chance of of keeping up with it provided that they had taken their objectives, um, which actually they were doing. Uh, the infantry in this case, and then they, the the way they divided up responsibility uh, in Saint Corps was happily quite handy you don't commit your full force in one go you've got you've got these waves coming on and you had dedicated moppers up um to enable assaulting troops to just press on and not worry about too much about you know hanging around dugouts trying to clear them out but they were there were soldiers set for that so they could move on we um we've talked about the fact that success comes at a high high price on the Somme and um, and this is from yet another officer in the 8th east Surrey. All our best men and NCOs are gone. And when one sees the remains of a fine battalion, one realises the disgusting sordidness of modern war. When any yokel can fire a gun that may or may not, chance entirely, kill a man worth 50 of the firer. But we must bear these losses silently, for it is the way that lies before us and the only way to victory. Lockie, um, that bit about Neville being shot through the head, how many letters, guys, have we read where someone is shot through the head and dies instantly and doesn't suffer, or it's one shot to the heart and they die with a slight smile on their face and suffer no pain? It's utter bollocks in a lot of cases, isn't it? It's, it's for the families. It's not truth. Yeah, I think... far too many times I've read that. Yeah, yeah you, know, you never hear a <laughs> read a letter that says oh, I copped a nasty abdominal wound and and lay in a shell hole for a couple of days in in absolute agony. There was um there was a case uh, I think Richard Grayson has it in his book Belfast Boys where he actually talks about um, the process of writing letters home and the families uh, in some cases actually took their letters to the press as in uh, you know if you want to publish this and and uh, tell the story about my son, brother, whatever, and what a hero he was, then I don't mind you publishing the letter. 
uh, and every single one of them shot through the head clean and didn't feel a thing. Um, <laughs> some some salt officers from the front had to get in touch with these newspapers and say, look, can you stop publishing this? Because we write, some, I think the phrase is, some utter balls uh, yeah. to these poor women um, to, to, to give them some peace of mind. And if you keep publishing it, we're just going to have to stop writing it because it's not fair. It's interesting as well. We discussed it on um, the oral history program when um, Peter Hart and Gary Bain came on, where we had a contrasting oral history um, and a letter, and the the difference was massive. The the letter was, as you say, um, designed to make someone feel better. It held no nothing about how he was really feeling um, or what was really going on in his head or what he was experiencing. And then this guy records a, a testimony oral testimony that that says it how it really was so it's kind of thing you have to take with a pinch of salt isn't it it's a uh, i always find with those kind of letters that they're good for highlighting obviously some some there would be some elements in truth in some of them i would imagine but it really does bring home to me the importance of um for, for those who were writing the letters probably not just to honor those who they were writing about but to protect their families as well because i'm sure that their families probably knew that it wasn't all hunky-dory and you know we charge across and no man's land and everything's all we're, we're doing really well they i don't think they would have thought that entirely but it, it offers them some level of protection and i suppose um a, a peace of mind that they don't have to think about didn't we have an issue with on, on a similar by way of example didn't we have a similar issue with cecil dean with the chelsea book where the mother got three letters, and the first two were textbook. He was shot straight away through the head or hit by shell. No, it was Collison. Is that who it was? Yeah. So the letters from the commanding officer who, who blatantly didn't even know who this young man was. Then he's writing to the family. He barely even knows him. And then we unearthed that letter where he was uh, the reality of the fact that he'd just lost his head and started staggering around in front of the German lines, and they were taking pot shots at him. And that's how he died. Um, but yeah, the difference between what the family were told. Um, it's not only the guys being killed as well. It's a harrowing experience for those being taken prisoner. And we actually have an account of uh, a chaplain who witnessed some German prisoners. All eyes were turned to the bend in the road, around which came the first batch of prisoners. A more pitiable spectacle of human misery I have seldom seen outside of a madhouse. Worn white and thin with the appalling bombardment, and with hands uplifted, they glanced like hunted animals from side to side as they crept through the lines of the wounded men and went back to the place provided for them. I think as well, we lose track of the heat of the moment when you're sitting there with a war diary and you're trying to write um, an account of what happened and you're using a written account, you you'd lose sight of just how graphic this experience was. And to go back to Private Cood in the East Kent Regiment, um, he describes just how bloodthirsty this day was. I am aghast at the accuracy of the fire. He has plenty of machine guns and is making a frightful carnage. I long to be with the battalion so that I can do my best to bereave a German family. I hate these swines. One feels that one must kill as often as one can. My hand strays to my pocket. I have two mills in each, and there are some Jerry's against me. They are prisoners, and had it not been for the fact that they are being closely watched, I would have put one at least of my bombs amongst them. So, Andy, how does it end for 18th Division? Well, they've 
they press on between um, Mamet and Montalban and uh, secure the high ground up there, and that's that's their objective. They've done really well. They're, on their left hand side, um, you've got seventh division uh, as well, who, who sort of on on their right, they've um, kept up um, too, and. Uh, the casualties are not inconsiderable. There's certain units that that um, suffer pretty heavily. I mean, Sixth Royal Berkshires, you know, have the uh, Casino Point mine blow up in their faces, and they take over 300 casualties. Um, uh, Seventh Queens uh, to sort of off to their right, um, attacking alongside the Carnoy Craters, they take over 500 casualties, but uh, they they do get through and uh, and secure the left flank of 30th Division, who have gone on to capture Montalban Village, and they're then up on that ridge line. The ground then drops away from them a bit, and they've got Mamet's Wood in front of them, 18th Division um, have, and, and pressing onto that's not going to be an option, so that's all they can do. It is vastly different narrative, isn't it, to the image of all those battalions further north where we're, we're sort of painted this image where they, they die on the parapets of their own trenches and get nowhere, um, and it's a total farce. And it's 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 why we remember that day. This is an account as well, um, guys, from a VC winner, Frank Maxwell, who is coming up with his battalion after the initial fighting on the first day. And, and this is what he describes. A battlefield in the old days, even though casualties were often far greater, must have been a clean, sweet business compared to one these days. The area over which it is fought is merely the face of God's lovely earth wrecked beyond recognition, except as a plague of volcanoes. Everything about the thing is unlovely and rather dreadful. And to those who are at all weak in the stomach, very dreadful and altogether unbearable. And there are a great many to whom, at any rate in cold blood, it is intolerable. I have two officers both shaken and now useless from mere sights. And I suppose there are plenty of men the same. And again, our chaplain describes seeing the wounded. Hour after hour those heroes came, some limping, some helping others who were worse than themselves, some lying still and white upon the stretchers, some asking for the drink which we were only too glad to be able to give to them. So brave, so patient. I felt amidst it all the uplift of a spirit which was not born on earth. Lockie, just sum up for us, what is the cost of the first day for 18 Division? It's around about 3,000, just over 3,000, I think, all told. Certain battalions suffering more than others. Um, you know, if you, if you are fortunate enough to be in one of these carrying party battalions like the 8th Suffolks, then you're, you're right, they take 20 casualties uh, or so. 7th Queens, as I said over 500 but it's, it's around about 3,000 for the day. We've already mentioned Holmes, this, the far right flank of the British assault which is where we meet the French is being done by 30th Division and yeah. their target is Montauban isn't it? That's right, I mean they were actually they started to occupy Montauban at I think it's about 5 past 10 in the morning and by 11 they'd taken it completely Let's hear from Private William Dunn of the King's Regiment the only feeling that I had was to get to the objective and stay there. And the thought that was uppermost in my mind was the phrase, for England, which I seem to be repeating continually. This is a truth and not put in for heroics. To be perfectly truthful, I was scared stiff. Lockie, there are some problems, aren't there? 
Yeah, so they had a, a couple of other little sort of complications uh, around. Um, they're off to their right, and sort of on the on the borderline with the French sector. Um, there was a, a brickworks um, which they felt they needed to get hold of, and uh, and which they did, which was not easy. Um, that was the seventeenth King's Liverpool Regiment, I think. Um, there were. These redoubts in front of them as well. You got um, positions like Dublin Redoubt and Glatz Redoubt, um, which took some fighting over. Generally speaking, the fighting when they did actually meet Germans who hadn't just been pulverized by the artillery, uh, they did one of two things, um, which was either fight to the death or surrender immediately. Um, obviously, they're much happier with the latter, but you know, there's, there's moments when there's very serious fighting uh, indeed um, and the Warren in particular was one of these redoubts it was roughly in the middle of um, of their sector and um, it, it, in the in, in the core sector uh, I should say um, and they were able to put some horrible enfilade fire uh, down into a, a battalion of the King's Liverpool. We actually we've got an account from someone in that battalion Lockie but let's start with someone in the 19th Manchester's and then we'll go straight on to Sergeant Ernest Bryan who was with the 17th Battalion of the Kings. Off we started, about 50 yards between each wave. I was carrying my rifle by the sling on the shoulder, with the bayonet parallel to my ear and had not gone many yards when whiz. I felt as if someone had pulled at the top. However, I took no notice, as we were at a quick march and it was taking all our time to keep going. Like nearly every other fellow, I was smoking. No man's land was one mass of shell holes, the soil was loose, and we had 400 yards of this to go to the first German trench. Over the top. Up lads, good luck. And we were away. We went about 25 yards, got through our wire alright, what was left of it. We were going very well. We were in the front wave. All of a sudden, I realised what a hell of a weight we were carrying. The number one, he carried the gun put it under his arm, finger on the trigger, and always about two yards in front of any infantrymen that were following. The barbed wire was shattered in strands all over the place, twisted round. When we got just off the front line, up pops a machine gun. Chained to this gun was a German. The first thing I did was put my gun on my shoulder and sprayed right along the top to keep their heads down. The German gunner went down. Whether he was hit or not, I didn't know and I didn't care. He was down. They were all down. That gave us a chance of getting to the trench. When we got in, the gun team were practically down. Not with the exertion of walking up and down shell holes and through wire, but with the damn load they were carrying. It was absolutely inhuman. My immediate concern was to get my Lewis gun on the back of their trench. Dublin Trench. Our Brigadier General, Stanley, he was up within our front line within an hour and a half of our taking it. Not standing in the trench, but standing in the open with a pair of field glasses looking at the German positions. I can still see him now. We stayed about an hour till the objectives were gained. And once you're in the front line, you don't stay there. Then you've got to go forward again to dig in about another hundred yards ahead of our objective. Dublin Trench. And we start digging in. Then the fun did start. We were getting enfilade from right and left. We were the first target. You're not going to worry about a chappy with a rifle. He can only kill one. 
but a Lewis gun could probably wipe the whole lot out. As we got nearer, dozens of Germans were running through us towards our lines with their hands up. Others stopped there throwing bombs, firing machine guns and rifles. But those who stayed until we got there will fire no more. I jumped into the German trench, what was left of it, just near a dugout door. In the doorway, there was a big barrel. As soon as I jumped in, a German leapt from behind the barrel, but I was already on guard and I had my bayonet on his chest. He was trembling and looked half mad with his hands above his head saying something to me which I did not understand. All I could make out was that he did not want me to kill him. It was here I noticed my bayonet was broken and I couldn't have stuck him with it. Of course, I had one up the chimney as we called it. This is a bullet in the breach. So you could only have to press the trigger. I pointed to his belt and bayonet. He took these off and his hat and his water bottle as well, emptied his pockets and offered a lot to me. Just then, one of my mates was coming up the trench. Get out of the way, Andy, leave him to me. I'll give him one to himself. He meant he would throw a bomb at him, which would have blown him to pieces. Come here, I said. The German was on his knees in front of me now, fairly pleading. I said, he's an old man. He looked 60. At the finish, I pointed my phone towards our lines, never taking my bayonet off his chest. He jumped up and with his hands above his head, ran out of the trench towards our lines, calling out all the time. He was trembling from head to foot and frightened to death. I honestly believe he could have done me as I jumped into the trench if he had not been so afraid. This was the only German I ever let off and I never regretted it. Well, with him away, we both bombed the dugout and turned round to go along the trench when three fine Germans came running towards us with their hands up. They would be about 20 yards away. We both fired and two fell. My mate saying as we let go, that's for my brother in the Dardanelles. And as we fired again, the third German fell. That's for my winter in the trenches. We walked up to them and one moved. My mate kicked him and pushed his bayonet into him. That finished him. This kind of thing was going on all along the line. No Germans spared. Wounded were killed by us all. We hadn't exactly been told no prisoners, but we were given to understand that that was what was wanted. Beth, they're so far ahead of schedule, aren't they, now? They have to wait for the artillery to catch up to finish smashing up Glatz Redoubt before they can carry on. Yeah, they did a superb job, really, the uh, artillery in that area. Obviously, we've got the uh, advantage for those, particularly on the far right of the support of the French artillery as well, which is um, in higher concentrations of numbers than, than the British have generally across the Somme offensive. So they're having to wait for that support when I imagine some of them probably were itching at the bit to go and chase after the Germans and try and keep going because obviously they will have had their objectives, but they will have wanted to exploit that. Uh, opportunity to go forward and and take what what they many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey they can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wagovi and zep pound for those who qualify Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Could. We actually, um, we'll just play it for you now, have a brief account from a lieutenant colonel in the 16th Bavarian Regiment um, as to what it was like to withstand that bombardment. The troops who had so far held the line south of Maumets and south of Montalban had sustained severe losses from intense enemy bombardment, which had been maintained for many days without a pause, and for the most part were already shot to pieces. So, Lockie, explain leapfrogging to us, because Montalban has been captured, hasn't it? And, but now those troops are tired, so what do they do? Well, it's, it's, it's the final press on through the, the back of Montalban. You got um, the 30th Division's attack was made by uh, 21st Brigade uh, on the left and, and 89th Brigade was the right flank. Um, 90th Brigade was the supporting brigade um, and they were going to move through 21st Brigade and that's essentially what it is. Um, 21st Brigade advanced, uh, pushed up uh, to, a, to a certain point and um, was around Glatz Redoubt. Uh, and fr from there, you got the 16th, 17th Manchester's. They formed up as the next assaulting wave. So they had to march up to get into that position. Um, they're now attacking from a German trench, um, which has been captured. And, um, and at the, the, the set time off they go um, with a couple of supporting battalions as well. And that's essentially leapfrogging. So, so when I take, there's certain techniques here that are, are used pretty effectively in 1917. Um, so there's some really good tactical work that's done um, in this corps. Uh, you know, 9th of April 1917 is, as you see, a, a leapfrog on a bigger scale where um, 4th Division leapfrogs through 9th Division at Arras, north of the Scarp, and there's great success there too. So it can really work, and it did on this day as well. I think it's important, isn't it? We said it on the last SOM programme, Alina, didn't we, that it's bloody and it's disgusting and it's horrible, but at no point can you say that the Battle of the Somme was pointless or useless because we were learning things that we were going to, as Andy says, we developed them in 1917 and then they win the war in 1918. Is that Montalban was absolutely shattered. It was smashed to smithereens. As the day winds down, um, there's, some, there's some novelty, isn't there, in being in Montalban? Two or three of us went down into a fine German dugout. There were cigars, tin food and German helmets. We all took a helmet, cigars and tobacco. Coming out with these German helmets on, we ran straight into our captain. Yes, he said, you all look very nice, but get some fucking digging done. Soldiers are inveterate souvenir hunters and collectors. And you know, I certainly remember re reading at least a couple of accounts of a few pickle haubs being acquired. and. Yeah. Because there's dugouts, isn't there? So I, I imagine the looting was uh, rife that evening. Good opportunities for it. There's also consolidation and things like that to do because, you yeah. know, one, some, some things in life are certain, death, taxes and German counterattack. Um, yeah, that's the point, isn't it, with Montalban? They're not going to give... This is a fortified village. They've put a lot of time and effort into making this part of their line. They're not going to give it up with without an attack. So yeah, there's some some levity um, with the souvenir hunting and the amusing themselves in the evening. But at all times, you're getting yourself ready for the next day, aren't you? Yeah, and I think I think 
one thing that 30th Division do, which is really astute, actually, I think their, their officers can take a lot of credit from this, is um, there's some good nudging, uh, particularly of Lewis gunners, not to just sit in uh, a captured trench that they've, that they've got hold of. Because uh, one thing that you know for certain is the German artillery back behind the lines know exactly where the German trenches are, so they'll know exactly where to put fire. Um, and so there's a decent effort, actually, to shove forward uh, Lewis gunners and, and infantry posts a hundred yards or so away from the, the line that they've captured, even if it's just in, in sort of outpost forms or in, in shell holes to begin with. And, uh, and, and the soldiers see sense in that uh, as well. And that puts them in a much better position to, to defend against the inevitable counterattack. 18th Division actually practiced consolidation for this attack. In, in June, they actually had training where they had to go and capture trenches People were charged of putting wiring down, gun emplacements, like you just mentioned, which, you know, I, I've not read about that across other sectors of the front on this day, which shows, you know, the, the strength of preparation that they put into this attack. Let's hear from Lieutenant William Bloor um, of the artillery about the counterattacks and then Private Pat Kennedy of the 18th Manchester's again, because um, he was pretty terrified when they came. At 3.20pm, received word that two battalions of Germans had been seen on the road from Longueval, evidently coming up to support. We were warned to be ready to receive them. We are ready, and ten times ready, and the more that come, the bigger the target. I'm at this moment waiting for further news of them. They were reported by the Flying Corps, and are a mile or two off yet, and out of sight. During one counter-attack, I couldn't get my ammunition clips out of my pouches quick enough, so this old soldier with a South African war ribbon said to me, Hey lad, get your clips on the top of the parapet. It's more easy for you to do it. It was a good tip because I could load very, very quick and fire. When you saw the Germans coming to you with fixed bayonets, the old sergeant who had been out since Monzi said, By God, Pat, if they get any nearer, we'll have to go meet them with a bayonet. I thought, right, I've got a round in my breech. In case I miss him with a bayonet, I can shoot him. Just pull the trigger, catch him that way. But they got very near on top of us a few feet away from us, and they were coming full pelt, yelling at the top of their voices. It's a nasty feeling to think of these big Germans, all picked men. They were regular troops, done years and years conscript service. But really, they were on a level with us, because it was their first field action they are in, I think. Holmes, do, do these guys have any idea that this... I mean, they've had, in inverted commas, a great day. They've taken all their objectives, they've done what was asked of them, Yes, their friends have died. It's a battle. It's not fun. Um, and it's bloody and there's death and things that will haunt them forever. But they have no Do they have any idea that it's such a disaster along the entire front? I, I, I think they had very little idea, to be honest. I don't know if it's for sure. But I mean, I think even in sectors where, you know, it didn't go very well and it was a disaster. It took till the afternoon, I think, to get back to sort of divisional HQ on certain times. So for it to get all the, the way down to the line to these troops, that are in the, you know, consolidating Montauban and things like that, I wouldn't have thought they had any idea. They probably proceeded under the misapprehension that, you know, everywhere had been equally successful as they had. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly borne out by what Private Pat Kennedy says. We didn't know that the 1st of July was a disaster. The only success was where our division and the 18th Division gained all their objectives. We thought the war would soon be over, as our men were flush with success. Lockie, sum up for us, the 13 Corps, why is it important that we, we talk specifically about them and what they did on the 1st of July? 
Well, it's massive for the rest of the campaign, actually, because in terms of the focus that the, the, the Somme campaign, because like, it's not just one day, and I know it's so tempting and easy to focus on one day, but we really can't, um, even if you, you, your mind is, mindset is, is to focus on casualties, because the bulk of the casualties in the Somme campaign weren't on the first day. Um, with the Czech in the north, you know, no progress coming there. I mean, there was some advice from the French, of course, French more experienced. The French would have liked uh, the British to, to, to crack on in the north. Um, they were planning on cracking on south of the, the river and they wanted a decent gap away from where they were going to be fighting to split the German forces. And there's some reasonable sense in that. <laughs> but the British leadership said, no, we're not going to do that. We're, we're going to reinforce success which again there's some there's some sense in that too so this area where they've made the break in 30th corps um was going to be the focal point for well the next few months of fighting um really which meant there was no let up really for for uh, 13 corps they were going to have to keep um pushing troops through that you know it's not a gap necessarily that they've made but through that bump that they've made um and so yeah it forms the basis of what's to follow which is a huge deal. So, yeah, we've got to look at this very much so. I think as well it's fair to say that the sort of, as we moved east across the central bit, so by the time we get to Posier in July and August, that might not have been as effective if we hadn't made these grounds earlier on and pushed sort of northeast from these successes. Yeah, no, even even further north where there were small little break-ins, um, immediately um, Haig's keen to get another general um, into play. He's keen to get General Goff um, in because he thinks he's got, quite high hopes for him uh, as, a, as a cavalryman but um and so he, he essentially um hands over rawlinson's northern command um to goff and there's not very much he can do with divisions like 36th division and 29th which are, which is so badly mauled um but around the albert bapham road he's got he's got some reserve units he's got 19th division that he can push in and they've just made a nibble into la Boiselle. and so he tries to expand a little breach there and and, and as it as it turns out this much bigger breach that the 13th core had made um would would be easier to work with that that was the thought and then we get into this horse, horseshoe of woods of course but um well, also, I mean, just, just two weeks later, there's another successful 13 Corps attack in the Battle of Bazantin Ridge, which, you know, I mean, I think one of the, the strengths and one of the reasons that they were successful is the, the commander's willingness to try new tactics, to change things around, to use new technology. You know, they had the flamethrowers, they had the mines. They also used saps on the southern section of the battlefield. Uh, quite effectively, they had saps at Sir, which they didn't. They decided out there they weren't going to use them. But you know, but yeah. they completely changed their tactics at Bazantin Ridge two weeks later. Yeah. I think the difference here compared to anyone else is that a Congreve knew the divisional commanders. They'd all, they'd all known each other and worked with each other for quite a while, and and they were all fine leaders of men, so to speak. But in in addition to that, they wanted to use anything that was available. You know, it's almost a bit like the the Dave Brailsford approach to cycling. If we can use one thing that's going to give us 1% extra, then they're going to, you know, they're going to try everything. Hence the flame projectors, the saps, the mines, sort of. And one thing I, I just want to add, we've mentioned the commander, we've mentioned the no let up. It's just to talk a little bit about Congreve and what this did to him. What had happened on 13 Corps front was that when reserves started to come into the battle, Congreve's eldest son, William, uh, Billy, came in 
to the line and under his father's command. And by this point, the Corps had come up against Longueville and Delville Wood, which was a huge challenge. Uh, Billy was a giant, six foot five, regular army officer, apple of his father's eye, just married, had married the daughter of um, some actors six weeks before the events of mid-July. And uh, he had already won every gallantry award going bar the VC. And by mid-July, his brigade, 76th Brigade, gets short notice orders to assault the Val and the northwest corner of Delville Wood um, the following morning. So they move off at 3.45. Now, Billy's job, he's a brigade major, which means that he's not actually with a fighting battalion. Um, the day did not go well. General Haldane, commanding the delivered... Uh, commanding the division to which they belong, travelled through the ruins of Montebaun into the very south of Longueval, where he found a brigade headquarters, so Billy as well, ensconced in a quarry. They were under a heavy artillery barrage, and Billy had just returned from one of his dangerous visits about the village to assess the situation and come and report back to HQ. Um, he says he looked tired, um, but he said nothing to him because he knew that if, how they knew if he told Billy he was overworking, he'd just scorn the idea. Um, he was in a state of exhaustion by this point. His Batman was snapping at his heels, urging him to calm down. But he characteristically, because they loved snapping at each other, these two, um, told him to shut up. The brigade was shelled heavily until dawn on the 19th of July. Headquarters was hit repeatedly with gas shells and the occupants had to evacuate. And um, Billy was pulling casualties out of harm's way himself with a medical officer, despite having been exposed to the gas. Um, not the only instance of him attempting to treat wounded men under heavy shell fire. And so that evening, orders arrived for the brigade to attack again on the 20th of July. So at 10.30 p.m., Billy arrived at a Suffolk battalion headquarters to describe their task and tell them what they needed to do. Spoke to all of the officers and platoon commanders and explained that they were to push off towards the, the east of the village, clear it, sweep northeast along a road running through the splintered remains of Delville Wood to gain touch with some Welsh fusiliers um, who were another battalion in their brigade. And then they were going to consolidate the entire area together. Having explained the plan, Billy then went out to superintend arrangements for the attack, had everybody with the Suffolks in place by 3am, but the Welsh Fusiliers had a much harder time getting to their jumping off point, thanks to lost guides and shoddy intelligence. Um, and they had already uh, repulsed two German attacks while they were trying to get themselves ready to attack themselves. So it was mayhem and a testament to their resolve that they managed to form up at all. To make matters worse, the leading company of Welshmen was being shot at by their own comrades because the commander of the nearby Essex Battalion um, had not been told that friendly troops would be moving about on his front or even that there was supposed to be an advance. So you can see the deteriorating um, picture by mid-July in, in trying to get over these problematic strong points and through this horseshoe of woods that Andy mentioned earlier. Uh, the Suffolks move off at 3.35am. The Welshmen, despite all they'd just endured 10 minutes later, um, they were hit hard and because they were unable to cooperate with each other, the attack folded and the men had to be withdrawn. So they fell back, dug in, changing tack from offensive to defensive. Uh, reports were coming back to the brigade from wounded men and prisoners. Seemed to indicate everything was going well, but then silence fell, as is constantly the problem in the First World War. Uh, worry begins to seep in because headquarters suddenly stopped getting information. Patrols were sent out but could not make any contact with the two companies that had gone out and it was feared that they had been wiped out entirely. So Billy had been on the move all day trying to establish just what was actually going on. So standing on a road leading to Longueval from the west, he was attempting to get the second Suffolks to secure their position. And he just about decided that he had gathered all the information he could and was looking to the higher ground in front when from inside the cornfield he was observing a German sniper fired a single bullet. It struck just below the breastbone and 
25 years old, Billy was dead pretty much as soon as he hit the ground, according to accounts. But we've discussed how problematic those accounts can be. His father, Walter, is still attempting to command the Corps. Uh, word reached a member of his staff early in the afternoon via telephone that Billy had been killed, um, that events at Delverwood had reached a critical juncture. Word reached a member of his staff early in the afternoon via telephone that events at Delville Wood had reached a critical juncture and Walter was about to send his men forward again in a, what was classed as a very important and daring operation. Um, and his staff knew they had to tell him that his son was dead, but they also knew that it was essential that he keep his head um, because he has tens of thousands more men under his command. Uh, so a staff officer enters the room and gently informs him that his oldest son, Billy, has died. And he said, he was absolutely calm to all outward appearance and after a few seconds of silence said quite calmly, he was a good soldier. That is all he allowed to appear and he continued dealing with everything as it came along in the same imperturbable and quietly decisive way as usual. The staff were not fooled at all. It says one of them writes to a friend saying, you know better than I what the loss of that son meant to him. His servant, was utterly heartbroken but fiercely determined to go up under fire and bring his body back so as he was carried away from Longerval, brigade men of the Gordon Highlanders followed with wild poppies and cornflowers to lay upon him. Unbeknownst to Billy he had left his new wife pregnant and their daughter Pamela was born eight months after her father's death on the Somme um, and he was awarded the Victoria Cross and if you'd like to visit him he's at Corby Communal Cemetery Extension. But pretty soon afterwards Congreve's senior's health starts to break down and he's not much longer for, for that role on the Somme with 13 Corps. He did come back to Corps Command in 1918 with 7 Corps, um, rose to the rank of general and was knighted, and then later served in Egypt and as Commander-in-Chief, Southern Command. Uh, he and Billy are actually one of only three father and son pairs to have won the Victoria Cross. It would be rude of us not to acknowledge the French to our right, they don't have a terrible day either, do they, in terms of military objectives? No, they don't. I think they get off pretty well from their preparations. Obviously, the French army at this point obviously has been the far larger armies, the senior partner in a way. They've got more resources, more more troops. Um, and the fact that they're better trained as well does come across on what happens to them on the 1st of July. Um, in the stretch of the some north of the river some that they are in conjunction with with the uh, the far right of 30th division at 7 30 they attack as any everywhere else on the uh, on the front and they do relatively well they overrun all the first line german positions um consolidate them quite quite well um and actually it seems like they might be able to to press on onto second line positions particularly the village of hardcore um it was decided because even though the 30th Division is keeping up to an extent that the decision was made to, to leave an attack on hardcore for the time being so that the British could, could catch up um, and try and iron out any difficulties that they had, they had had over over the course of the day. So again, north of the river, fairly strong. Um, south of the river, also very strong. Slightly different in what happened there in the fact that they were slightly delayed um, their artillery had given the Germans a complete whacking. Um, they'd taken out German artillery. Um, they'd got complete supremacy south of the river down towards Dompierre. Um, and 
they they were able to advance the troops were able to advance with their artillery support because they knew that the german artillery had been made null and void essentially um that they were also uh, a surprise attack because they were two hours late um and the germans thought after watching the fight to the north of the river that maybe they weren't coming but they did at half past nine and managed to uh, take their first line positions as well. And then in some cases really put themselves in a good position to take on the, uh, the second line to then crack on with the offensive. You re- you raised a really interesting point there, which is the fact that some of these British guys, like we're talking about um, new army divisions, they weren't well enough trained, were they? Some of them. Some weren't. I mean, uh, particularly in terms of, um, uh, specific kind of large-scale offensive operations um i don't, I don't think there's too many units where like they hadn't met the germans if you know what i mean you know most yeah. of these even new army units had been out there for a few months and had taken part in raids um oh by the way some of these units in in the um, 13th corps uh, take part in raids in the days leading up to it they're not all successful um so yeah, even even in this successful side of things, everything works perfectly. Um, yeah, it's this large scale offensive um, that well, we'd, we'd never done anything on this scale before. Um, so yeah, it's not too un, unreasonable. It's not too insulting to say that they weren't ready, is it? No, it's no, it's not, and that, and that shows sometimes in the impetuousness um that you get then you get certain units advancing too quickly and advancing into you know the, the british own uh, artillery barrage um even um some of the regular army uh units on on maybe 29th division up in the north uh, as an example gallipoli experience isn't the same as western front uh, experience and you see that later on when the australians come in uh, as well and i'm not going to I think first Australian division do well at Pozier, but then they make mistakes when the Germans counterattack. So yeah, it's specific experience. It's important, I think, that we also pay some attention to airmen on the first of July. Um, this is not the opening day of the offensive for them. They have been doing battle above uh, the Somme for six months to try and gain supremacy, to enable photographic reconnaissance, artillery observation, keep the skies clear. Uh, for the machines doing this work. At this point, supremacy in the air in, in the spring of 16 really had swung back towards the British. So we're not looking at a situation like bloody April in 1917, but nonetheless, it was risky work. One of the aircrafts was a, a pusher aircraft called the FE-2B, which was a two-seater with an engine behind the pilot. That's why it pushes the plane. Um, and his observer perched in a forward cockpit um which meant that he had an unobstructed view for firing and these machines would be routinely attacked and ambushed by german airmen this is captain harold wiley the fokkers evidently worked on some pre-arranged plan as they were firing some white lights before swooping down after the first attack which was made between us and the sun the enemy showed much more caution in approaching near it was in this first attack i think that cairn duff was shot down Alan and his observer Powell shot dead as he was firing back, and I think uh, he got his man too, as there it was, uh, as saw one Fokker going down. Anyhow, side slipping and nose diving. Anyway, Powell had his gun right on as the bullet grazed his trigger finger and struck him in the eye. He, uh, he fell back into the nacelle, breaking one of his legs in the fall. 
Alan was now defenceless, and in spite of the fact that the machine was shot to bits, just managed to scrape back over the lines when his engine stopped. He got back into the aerodrome. But pretty soon the Germans grow to know that this, this can be a dangerous opponent, this aircraft. Still, though, scout aircraft are the more terrifying if you're a German airman. And the DH-2 was one of these. And uh, Gwilym Lewis was flying these. If a Hun sees a de Havre, he runs for his life. They won't come near them. It was only yesterday that one of the fellows came across a Fokker. The Fokker dived, followed by the de Havre, but the wretched Fokker dived so hard that when he tried to pull his machine out, his elevator broke, and he dived into our lines. Not a shot was fired. On the 1st of July, the RFC need to make sure that the German airmen get no traction in the sky above the battlefield. They need their photographers, their reconnaissance workers, their artillery spotters to be able to work unmolested to cooperate with troops on the ground. This is an account from Lieutenant Tudor Hart of 22 Squadron, who was, who was in an FE-2B, round about five miles behind the lines when they spotted a formation of Germans coming towards them. We saw eight German machines approaching from the southwest. They were higher than us and we flew towards them to attack. Two passed over our heads together about 300 yards or so apart and I opened fire on one. They both replied together. I gave the signal to Webb to turn so that I could fire at the other machine behind us, but he put the machine's head down. I turned to see what was the matter and he pointed to his abdomen and collapsed over the joystick. He died in a few seconds, I think. But his last thought was to save his machine. The machine at once began turning towards the German side, and I had to get back to my machine gun to fire at a machine diving at us. This happened again and again, but my fire would always prevent them finishing the dive. Other machines fired from above all the time. I had only time to get the machine pointing towards our lines when I had to get back to the gun. I never got a chance to pull Webb out of the pilot seat, so I had to steer with my hand over the windscreen. I didn't expect to get off alive, but tried to put up as good a fight as possible, and tried all the time to keep her towards our lines, but having to man the gun so often made it impossible and to make progress, but the erratic course the machine flew probably saved it. At last, still being fired at, I got right down near the ground and proceeded to make a landing, as it was all I could do. I saw a lot of men with rifles and realised that I might get shot before I could set fire to the machine, so I at the last minute put her nose down in order to crash. One wing tip hit first, the whole machine was destroyed. I was hurled out and escaped with a bruised and paralysed side and broken ankle and rib. Massively confusing for the airmen to know what was going on, to tell which gunfire belonged to who, who was getting forward, who was being pushed back. Um, but they have at least managed to stop the German batteries from doing aerial observation. They are contributing in that way by stopping information getting back to German gunners. Major Lano Hawker, who was a Victoria Cross winner, left this account of the air round about lunchtime. No hostile aircraft seen. About 12 Six-horsed vehicles moving south along Artillery Lane and two or three moving east from Beaucourt sur Ancre. Two or three vehicles moving both ways along Saint-Pierre-Divion-Grandcourt Road. Big high explosive shells bursting on our trenches opposite Thiepval. Hostile trenches 
from Ankara to Tietval crowded with dark infantry, presumably Germans. Very few men seen in trenches from Tietval to Albert Bapon Road. Crater north of road empty. Crater south of road and communication trench to northeast held by us. Many dead lying on eastern slopes outside this crater. One-horsed vehicles moving in Contarmaison. Our men in communication trenches north of Fricourt facing south. Shrapnel bursting on a line Mamet's Wood, Montauban. No indication that Ovier, Contalmaison or La Boisselle had been captured, but enemy apparently contained in Fricourt. Pilot's impression. Enemy holding on to the line Tietval Ancre while he evacuates his artillery. And another thing that the Royal Flying Corps is doing on this day as well is harassing the German reserve being sent up to go into battle. They do this generally with two C to B, two Cs, which are a solid enough aircraft, but it's not a scout plane. And what they're doing is bombing potential reserves and collections of troops behind the lines. And this is a description from a German prisoner. About 3.30 p.m., the 1st Battalion of the 73rd Reserve Regiment and the 11th Reserve Jäger Battalion were at St. Quentin Station, ready to entrain, arms were piled, and the regimental transport was being loaded onto the train. At this moment, English aeroplanes appeared overhead and dropped bombs. One bomb fell on a shed which was filled with ammunition and caused a big explosion. There were 200 wagons of ammunition in the station at the time. 60 of them caught fire and exploded. The remainder were saved with difficulty. The train allotted to the transport of troops and all the equipment which they had placed on the platform were destroyed by fire. The men were panic-stricken and fled in every direction. 180 men were either killed or wounded. It was not till several hours later that it was possible to collect the men of 71st Regiment. It was then sent back to billets. Lockie, I'm going to ask you this. This is a bitch of a question, but you do do 1917. To what extent does 13 Corps work on the 1st of July and in the weeks that follow impact Britain's success at Arras and Messines and, and further forward in the war? Yeah, good question. Well, you see a lot of... Sorry, it's a bitch of a question. <laughs> oh, I like it. Well, it ties in with loads of stuff that I'm doing because you see, you see um, a lot of... What when I, mean, when I was going back over over my my notes for this kind of thing, I was like, hang on a minute, I've seen that in in my early nineteen seventeen stuff, you know, as a kind of new technique that's being trained into a different division that also attacked on the on the first of July without success. Um, so things like yeah, the use of engineers that Andy talked about earlier. I mean, they they cut themselves a new frontline trench to advance the line and shorten the distance uh, of no man's land. Um, they they cut. Um, saps for trench mortars they do things like uh, get Lewis guns forward into no man's land to put them into covering positions before the attack goes in they actually have men firing Lewis guns from the hip as part of the advance I'm not saying this fella hit anything um, um, but it's just more bullets flying forward which will keep German heads down Um, uh, they're following a creeping barrage of sorts you know a a proto creeping barrage but you know the creeping barrage changes, doesn't it, from jumping to a smooth... Yeah, uh, it'll, it'll uh, move at a certain pace, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the, the leapfrogging, things that we talked about before, um, there's, 
you know, they're well trained. I mean, there's certain, um, especially 18th division. Um, we talked about Maxi, of course, but um, uh, the, the moppers up. Uh, role, for example, that's something that, that comes in in a big way and becomes, I hesitate to say doctrine with the British Army, but um, yeah. becomes very much a, a format um, for them. Um, so for people who don't know, that is where you just let your first attacking troops go for the objective and you add separate troops behind to come up and clean up after them and make sure there's no one hiding in a dugout or in a machine gun emplacement um, and to just basically make sure that everything is tidy behind them yeah and i've got a feeling this comes from proximity to the french a little bit because they're still using the term nettoyeur um in 1916 so yeah i think they're 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 smart enough to to learn from um the french who i think by and large are more experienced on their on their right hand side so yeah they're not they're not above that at all learning from the french let's just do some book recommendations before we go I have to say as well that we've taken the first-hand testimony that we've taken, if you've been moved by it and you want to hear more of it, we've taken it all from Peter Hart's songbook. We did tell him after we'd done it, but he's my Peterkins, he doesn't mind. Um, but he has a massive spider-killing epic of a book on the Somme, which is packed, and it covers the entire battle, and it is packed with testimony like that um, of people who were there. And it's a great... I say introduction, it's like 800 pages long, but it's if you're only ever going to read one book on the Somme and you want to understand the battle from start to finish and know what it felt to be there, it's, it's a good effort, isn't it, Lockie? Yeah, yeah he always he's really, really makes use of the testimony in, in, in an instinctively good way that, that tells the story of the battle as well. It's not just a list of accounts or, or anything. It, it works well. Um, on, on a in helping me get this um, together, I, I also had a look at Jonathan Porter's um, book, which, I mean, if you think Peter Hartz can kill some spiders, um, yeah. uh, <laughs> kill some, you know, farm animals and, and things. <laughs> Holmes, you used this one as well. Tell us about that one, because he did give us permission to use that as well. Yeah, it's, I don't know, it's, it's almost two inches thick. It's A4 size. I, it's, I struggle to lift it with one hand. Andy will probably be able to do it, but... Um, it's got everything in it. It concentrates purely on 13 Corps and this one attack. Um, it's one of the most detailed, but it's incredible. Although there's lots of words in it, he uses maps and um, sort of maps superimposed over drone photos. So actually, although there's a lot of detail, it's really clear and understandable. The quality so, of the images is superb in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that one is. So that is like a, a self-published thing, isn't it? But it is still widely available. You can get hold of it. I know he had It's widely available. Yeah, it's yeah. called... Um, Zero Hour Z Day, uh, 13 Corps Operations between Maricourt and Mamets, and it's by Jonathan Porter. Um, I think he's got his own website, but I think it is available elsewhere. And obviously you and I wrote a book about the Somme as well, which is awesome. Yeah. Beth, any recommendations for the opening day of the Somme? Or just the Somme in general for people? But obviously, Peter Hart, you can't get away from Peter Hart. Um, no, you can't. I've tried for many years. Yeah, as much as you might try. I'll get away. Uh, this is far too, far too many. Um, obviously, Gary Sheffield's Battle of the Somme book as well. Well, we've got uh, you've got Forgotten Victory, which is just a general book, obviously, and then just Gary Sheffield the Somme as well. Oh, and then obviously, if people want to read about the air war, Peter Hart again, 
you really can't get away from him. Some success is it's only a little one, but it's um well for Pete, there's no spider killing there. But uh that focuses on the the air war over the song, which is deeply interesting as well. Okay, guys, thank you. Um I hope using some of that first hand testimony and talking like this, we've managed to I it's difficult. It is a horrific day of battle. Um and it is the worst day in the history of the British Army, and you can't hide from that. But to say that nothing was achieved is wrong. We did. And not only did we achieve stuff there tactically on the ground, but it, as Lockie says, it comes into training. It comes into advancing methods for the rest of the war. And I think as well as commemorating the horror of the loss on that day, you also have to at least pay a little bit of attention to the, I hesitate to say good, but to the positive military stuff that came out of it. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.